Hello, friends. It's good to see you guys with us. We want to welcome those that are joining us online and uh, who might have been a slightly bit more intelligent than the rest of us uh, who sought to get out here in this mess. But here's the deal. I, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful for the warmth that we can share, um, not only physically in this space, but just spiritually. Together, as we encourage one another um, towards love and good deeds. Um, last week, we began a series called Disciple. And a disciple um, is... By definition, simply this. I'll put it for you up on the screen so you can see it and just be reminded. Uh, if you're a first-time guest with us, uh, this will be new to you. But this is how we would define a disciple in the context of this series we started last week. Uh, it's simply a learner or an apprentice. Uh, you might even say student. But it's someone who believes the ideas and the principles of a master, and they seek to live the way that person did. In the case of the disciples that we oftentimes hear about, we think of the 12. But we know that Jesus called many people. And in their progressive journey, Jesus seems to take a multitude of people and then narrow it down to 12 in which he would give the title apostles. These apostles would be not only students and apprentices um, of their master, Jesus, but they would become preachers of the good news. They would herald and proclaim the gospel uh, across Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and uttermost parts of the world, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Luke records. And what's interesting about uh, this idea is we go on this journey starting today uh, with the apostles and just kind of working through them the best we can, one by one, uh, in, at the end, we'll kind of group a few of them together. We just need to note that their journey was, as we discussed last week, a very progressive journey. A matter of fact, here in just a few moments, you're going to see the progressive journey, even of a guy named Peter. And I'll show you that progressive journey. And if you'll lean in with me as we go, you'll see just how progressive that journey was, even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, what's interesting is that the journey is progressive because though you start as a student, these apostles become preachers and world changers. And I just want to ask you the question, if you too are a disciple, then what things are you hoping to change in the world you live in? As a matter of fact, last week I challenged our entire church and want to challenge those that are joining us online as well to be a follower of Christ. And when we are followers of Christ, we, we do have a progressive journey, but we proclaim and herald the good news in such a way that we change our own community. So what's one thing that you did in the last seven days since we gathered last that pointed other people to the master Jesus? Like what's one conversation you had with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker that reminded them of the hope that you have in Christ? See, I think what happens oftentimes in our week, and I could be wrong, but we're running at such a frantic pace going from here and there and getting everywhere, doing things at work and school and life and kids and family and grandparents and all these things. It's easy for us just to arrive here again today without making any real difference in the last week for the sake of Christ. But friends, that's what I want to call you to resist. I, I, I want to encourage you as we approach 2024 to think about your week differently. That as you connect in the workplace, that workplace is not only an opportunity for you to make an honest day's wage and to make a difference for your family, but ultimately to use that environment, that context to promote Christ and to invite others to be a part of your faith family. 
and to lead people to Jesus. That's what a disciple does. A disciple learns about the master Jesus and then heralds and proclaims that message to anyone who will lend us an ear. As we think about the apostles, we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke a list of who it was that Jesus called. John uh, is a little different in the sense that we don't get the same list that we get everywhere else. But what I want you to do is turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and I want you to see what the historian Luke, the physician, records about the narrative when Jesus calls not just disciples, but these group of men, apostles. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, it says this, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray. That's Jesus. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when a day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12. So you see there's a multitude, and out of the multitude, verse 13 says he selects these 12, and then he names them apostles. And in many ways, they go from apprentice and students to preachers. They become the ministers and really an ambassador of their master. So they are in charge with taking the kingdom of God and making it flourish from that day forward. It's interesting to note, if you look at verse 14, the first in every list to be named an apostle is a guy named Saint, a Simon, who he named Peter. There was also Andrew, his brother. And there was James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. And there was Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, if you want to know more about this list, I encourage you to go back and check out the message from last week. It's on our website under our resources page. Uh, you can look at past sermons there and you can go and check it out. But here's what just kind of sum it up you need to know is that the group of men that Jesus is calling apostles are certainly ordinary, common, uneducated men. And when I think about my life, I'm thankful that that's the type of people that God chooses to use. Uh, this, he chooses to use people who are ordinary so that by all means, he can do something extraordinary. And that's really the call of the disciple. And that's who these people are. And what we're going to do in the next handful of weeks, leading all the way up to the week of Easter, is we're just going to kind of examine these different men's lives. And we're going to start with the very first one on the list. And his name is Peter. Now, let's just say that you are going to go and check out the web and uh, maybe you're going to pull up BibleGateway.com or you're going to pull up BibleStudyTools.com or you're going to pull up some other resource and you just want to select the name Peter, you want to put it in your search bar, his name is going to come up on your browser within that Bible study filter probably between 150 to 162 times. But Peter... This name is the name given by Jesus, uh, which is the name in the Greek, Petra, which would mean rock. Um, rock, when you think about it, is certainly an, uh, a landscape rock. You see those in our yards or you see them on mountainsides. Uh, but this particular text in the spiritual sense means to be one who's not easily moved, but one who is not swayed, but is very firm in their foundation and standing. And so Petra uh, not only would refer to the, the rock next to you, but it would also be the name given to Simon, Peter, the rock, because Jesus certainly intended for this disciple to become the de facto spokesperson for the twelve. 
He was going to be the leader among the leaders. He was going to become, as I would say today, brash and bold and courageous. And when you think about this Petra, this rock, the one who is not going to be easily moved and swayed, it's interesting that as we cover who he was, it looks as if he was easily moved and swayed. That's just who he was. And it's interesting because Jesus is giving him this name that certainly seems to be more indicative of what he is hoping that he's going to become. And so when you think about this progressive journey, when he gives Simon, Peter, this name, it's not indicative of who he was in that moment. It's very much a progressive journey. But as you kind of look at, through your browser, you, you certainly want to uh, put Simon in there as well. Um, he was also referred to in the New Testament as Cephas. If you were to add Simon and Peter and Cephas together, you'll see that he comes up in the Gospels and in the New Testament, the early church, over 185 times. He is a very prominent person in the early church and certainly a very prominent disciple. As the de facto spokesperson, we see probably as much or more about him than anyone else. And here's what we know about him. Uh, we know that he's the first disciple on every single list as mentioned. We also know that Simon was originally uh, from the place called Bethsaida, and eventually he would move to Capernaum. Both of those were on the coastline of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Luke calls it a lake, uh, but on this body of water, we know that Simon Peter lived in two different locations. And we know that he was a fisherman by trade because we know earlier in Peter's journey that it was Peter that Jesus said, I want you to come and follow me and I'm gonna make you fishers of men. In one gospel account, we know that Peter dropped to his knees and said, Lord, I am not worthy to follow you. And Jesus goes, no, come on, you're, you're gonna follow me and I'm gonna help you fish for men. And so Peter was a guy who many people knew. Uh, we know that according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, as well as Paul writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, that Peter was married. We know that he had a mother-in-law because she, went, she, she became sick. Uh, so we know quite a bit about him. And we also know that he was one of the at least slowest disciples when he ran. You might, well, well how, how do you know that? Well, John... The beloved disciple made sure to point that out in John's narrative. In John chapter 20, verse 4, when the tomb was empty and they heard it, John said, I got there before Peter did. <laughs> so Peter's not the fastest guy, and maybe in some ways uh, mentally as well. It took him a while to learn. But either way, he was one of the closest disciples that Jesus had. Uh, out of the 12 Jesus had three um, that he would consider beloved, uh, John, Peter, and James. Now, when you think about Peter, and I've mentioned this already, that he was the de facto spokesperson, you might go, what do you mean by that, Brandon? Like, what, what do you mean he's, he's kind of the spokesperson? Well, Peter um, is oftentimes referred to by other scholars as the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. He's oftentimes the guy who's going to speak up. Sometimes it's a really good occasion. And then other times it's like, you probably shouldn't have said anything. Um, sometimes you have those moments, right? And you're like, oh, it would have been good if you had some unexpressed thoughts. <laughs> Peter just says what it's on his mind. And as a result of that, it sometimes gets him in trouble. 
Before we talk about the brash nature of who he was, let's just talk about some of the things that we would say show his boldness. Certainly, Peter was bold because if there was ever a question that he didn't understand, he would ask. And listen, Jesus was a master teacher, and one of the ways he taught best was by stories. And oftentimes when Jesus would tell a story, he meant for it to be a little complicated for his hearers. There were times that Jesus would tell a story about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they would walk away angry, not only because the story might have been about them, but because they didn't understand the complexities of all the stories. And so when there was a complexity, Peter oftentimes said, Lord, I, I don't think we understand what you meant. What, what do you mean by that parable? Or, hey, was that a parable that you were teaching? You see that that was Peter's response. It was in those questioning, though, that brought even Peter to the awareness that when Jesus asked the question, hey, who do people say that I am? Many of the apostles began to speak. One would say, well, you, they say that you're Jeremiah. Well, others say that you are Elijah. It was here in this account that Peter actually says, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, in the book of John, I believe it says that you are the Christ of God. But it was the declaration that Peter would make that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You are not merely Elijah. You are more than Elijah. It was in the questions that you would see his boldness that Jesus would give him the name Rock. Uh, Peter was certainly a pillar of the early church. And it wasn't just because Jesus gave him the name Petra, but even Paul recognized that. Paul wrote to the church of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, and he said, you are indeed that, that Peter was indeed one of the pillars of the early church. So Peter had a unique role, a very bold man. It was Peter that asked the question, Lord, how many times are we to forgive others who've sinned against us? And the common response in that day is that you would forgive your brother how many times? Seven times. Uh, but it was then that Jesus replied, listen, I don't say that you would just forgive people seven times. I, I believe that you should forgive people 70 times seven. Peter was the guy who was having that interaction. It was Peter that asked the question, hey, what are we going to have in the next kingdom? Uh, what's going to be ours? See, Peter is the one who had lots of responsibilities. Matter of fact, in prepping for uh, the final Passover meal before Jesus is taken uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was Peter and John, two beloved disciples that were charged with going and getting um, the room ready for the Passover meal. It was Peter that's famously known to have walked on water. We also know him because he stumbled as he walked on water. He lost focus, right? And we oftentimes think about the one who stumbled. And certainly Peter did that. But when you think about him walking on water, you also have to make a note that he is the one of only of those 12 that had the courage and the audacity, the boldness to take such a leap of faith. And so in all of his brashness and all of his trouble, he oftentimes was a big part of Jesus' ministry and experiences. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 17 or Mark chapter 9, you see, as well as in Matthew, that, uh, that Peter was a part of the transfiguration, that he actually beheld the glory of God along with Jesus. And Elijah and Moses were there. It was there that Peter goes, hey, can I just go like, make us some tents so we can camp out for a while? Peter was an instrumental part. He was a very bold man. But with his boldness came brashness. 
When I say brashness, uh, you might recall the time, and it's listed in just Matthew and Mark, but Peter was actually rebuked by Jesus because Jesus was preparing his apostles that he was going to go away and that he was going to die at the hands of sinners. And Peter goes, far be it from us, Lord, like it's not happening. Like you're, this isn't going to happen. And you remember what Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Only one in the New Testament that's ever called Satan. This bold guy, a man of faith, but he was the disciple of the foot-shaped mouth. He was the one that often spoke at the wrong time. In this particular instance, he was called Satan. It was also him that, who was brash enough at the Garden of Gethsemane, um, one, to fall asleep when Jesus encouraged the disciples to stay awake. Now, I briefly touched on that last week, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is praying, Lord, may there be any other way that this cup could pass from me. He doesn't, he goes, in my humanity, if there's any other way that the wrath of God could pass by. But then Jesus says, but not my will, but thy will be done. It was in this same moment, the same hour, that as Jesus sweats, droplets of blood, and the stress and the anxiousness and the fretting of what is to come, that he also encourages the disciples to stay awake for just one hour. But do you know when he's having this conversation that's recorded that he goes to Peter first? Peter, why can't you stay awake for just one hour? See, being the de facto spokesperson is always not always to be commended, right? Sometimes you get yourself into positions where people expect a lot of you. And sometimes you're like me, couldn't somebody else just lead? I'd imagine that Peter might've felt that at times. But Peter, as a de facto spokesperson, is also the guy who not only falls asleep, but when the hour has come that Jesus is to betray, be betrayed by a traitor, as he's captured by the high priest and many others, it is said that Peter grabs the sword and he goes after a servant of the high priest. And what does he do? Cuts his ear off. It is in this moment that even Peter misses it again. Jesus takes the ear and, and heals this man, but it's in this brashness that Peter seems to miss the moment again. That's not all of it. Y'all might recall the time where Jesus was washing his disciples' feet, and Jesus actually was approached by Peter, and Peter says, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus actually just says, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. And Peter quickly goes, well, then wash my feet. <laughs> so in one instance, he's like, no, 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 you're not doing that. He goes, you have no share with me in the kingdom. Okay, well, then, then do it. You just see the brashness of this man. And when I think about Peter, unfortunately, I think about some of you. And I think about me, right? How many of you are like, I kind of, I kind of, kind of identify with this guy. Like, you know, like I speak a lot. Sometimes I get myself in a bind. Listen, as we go through this journey, there's going to be plenty of apostles that you could go, yeah, I'm probably more like him. But there are some of us in the room that that's, that's us. What's interesting is this, and I just want to make a quick note, is that in the American church, we love to esteem Peter. And certainly in many ways, he should be respected. But can I just share something? we don't want our pastor to be like him. 
you may go, well, what do you mean? Well, listen, we don't give our pastors much grace when they miss it. I was having a conversation with somebody in the lobby earlier. And I said, what's interesting is this. I said, I've been watching the news over the last handful of evenings. And I said, and there are many weathermen that are keeping their jobs today and they have already missed the forecast, right? (laughs) And I said, I could go in and I could say a couple of things wrong And in 35 minute period, I could no longer be the pastor of a local church. Now I say that just to say, look, pastors, if they're like Peter, oftentimes get it wrong. There are oftentimes as a fallible man that sometimes I wanna say this and I say that. There are times where in boldness, I want to encourage and I want to inspire our church And sometimes it's misconstrued or it's taken as if it's in anger or in haste. Like the reality is, is if I identify with Peter, I have many more moments where I'll have to say, I'm sorry. I wanted to do this, but I did that. And when you look at the bold and the brash nature of Peter, you have to recognize that he was indeed a fallible man fallible is a fancy word for sinner. He did not have it all together. He was on a very progressive journey. Now you may say, well, what do you mean he didn't have it all together? Well, I've already shared a couple of instances where he's missed it, but let me share a couple of more. Peter is the one who is famously known not only for stepping out onto the water, but for denying Christ three times before the rooster crowed. Have you ever heard that story? Go ahead and raise your hand with me. Go ahead. Hey, if you're online, go ahead. You can just raise it up in your living room or your room. Like you're, you've heard that story. And what's interesting is, is Peter vehemently said to Jesus, I will not deny you. Jesus told him it's coming. And he goes, it will not be so. And what's interesting is after Jesus um, had been arraigned and had been undergoing the the future trial and the beating and the scourging and all that would take place. Peter seems to withdraw, but there is certainly commotion around him when one servant girl approaches and says, hey, aren't you one of them? And which Peter denies. It's said that a second servant girl then comes to Peter and says, hey, listen, aren't you one of them? We can hear it in, in the way you speak. For instance, hey, we know you're from Galilee. We hear it in your undertones. We hear it in your dialect. Friends, you know I'm from Texas because of the way I speak, right? (laughs) Amen. That's right. Well, that's true here. And yet it is in his dialect that this little girl, this servant says, you're one of them. And he says, no, I'm not. And as a group of bystanders hears all the commotion and sees, they too charge him with being one of the apostles into which he curses them and says, I do not know the man, Jesus of Nazareth. It is after those words that he hears the rooster crow. And what's interesting is, is in John chapter, uh, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 26, you see that the rock crumbles and he bitterly weeps at what he has just done. Now, what's so interesting about that is that he misses it. And he doesn't just miss it then, he'll actually miss it later. It's in Galatians chapter two, verses 11 and following, that he is actually going to be called out by Paul. Paul is gonna be calling him out because he goes, hey, listen, you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile, 
until the Jews show up, then you want the Gentiles to live like Jews. And he goes, you can't have it both ways. And that's Peter that he's having an exchange with. It says that Peter even led Barnabas astray, the son of encouragement. So we know that there's commotion. We know that in this progressive journey of the rock's life, that he's not always standing as solid as he should. Now, the reason I love this picture is because it brings every single one of us hope as disciples, that we can go on a progressive journey and that we can be more conformed to the image of Christ every single day. I do want you to see that John records in a special interaction with Peter that's worth noting. And I'll show you why it's worth noting as you turn there. In John chapter 21, John is about to finish up his gospel work, the good news, as he writes various signs about why people should believe. As you close this particular chapter in John chapter 21, John actually says, I have written these things so that you might believe in the Christ. Just before he says this as a conclusion, I've written these things that you might believe, he actually tells us of one last encounter with guess who? Peter. And what's interesting about this account is that it brings great clarity and hope as to why Peter matters and about the grace of God in Peter's life. And I want you to look at it with me. Now, real quickly, before we see this actual dialogue and interaction, let me just set the, uh, the scene and the stage for you. Peter, along with the other disciples, are out fishing, and they are trying to fish, and which they don't seem to be having a large success with, in which they see somebody show up on the shore. This particular person on the shore, they note as Jesus, though he looks slightly different after the resurrection. This is not the first encounter that they've had with him. This isn't the first time. It seems to be the third encounter. But as they have this encounter, Jesus is going to say, hey, cast your net on the other side. They have a large gathering of fish in which they bring onto the seashore. They seem to have breakfast with Jesus. And it's after the events of this breakfast that Jesus seems to have a moment with Peter. Hey, man, can I have a few moments with you? And it seems as if there may be a conversation that seems to be a little sidebar conversation. And this is how it goes. Beginning in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, hey, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, well, feed my lambs. Jesus then says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. Like you just asked me that. You know that I love you. And he goes, well, tend to my sheep. Verse 17, he then looks at him a third time and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said that to him a third time. Do you love me? Imagine this. This is the interaction. He goes, Peter, do you love me? Well, Lord, you know I love you. No, Peter, like I'm asking you, like, look at me, man. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And then he looks at him again. He's like, no, look, look at me. And it's almost as if he grabs his cheek and looks eye to eye, man to man. No, I'm asking you, Peter, 
do you really love me? And Peter is grieved. Now, why is Peter grieved? Because he goes, no, do you love me? And then he says, Lord, you know everything. He goes, you're not just some man. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You know before I answer what I'm going to say. You know that I love you. You know this, God. You know this, Lord. I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. Now, what's interesting about this interaction is that Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And in every instance, he calls him Simon. Simon was his original name. Peter means rock. In almost every instance where Peter failed, Jesus called him Simon. Probably by this point, Jesus has referred to Simon so many times that when Peter hears it, he almost probably takes a deep breath. Because <sighs> he would rather hear the rock, Petra, Peter. But instead, he keeps getting Simon. It's almost like your mama and your daddy. When they call you by your middle name, Brandon Lee Bachtel. There's something in us that just goes, <sighs> yeah, some of your wives do that, right? <laughs> you understand your spouse does it. Look, that is likely the conversation. Simon, do you love me? No, Simon, do you, do you love me? Simon, do you really, really love me? Now, I can't prove it, and I've not read any commentators that would suggest it, so I could just plausibly be wrong, but my own personal opinion is that many ways, this is three affirmations to young Simon where he missed it in three opportunities to deny the Christ. What's interesting is, is what's said next. And the reason I believe this to be in some ways three redemptive steps for Simon Peter is because of how Jesus ends this narrative in John's gospel. Verse 18, he says, well, okay, feed my sheep. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, how you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. So he goes, you used to be your own man. You could get up in the morning, you could decide what you wanted to do, where you wanted to go, what you wanted to wear. But when you were old, he says, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and they'll carry you where you do not want to go. As I think about this, I think about Paul writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 13. You might remember the passage where Paul says, you know, I used to, I used to be a child. I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. I thought like a child. Then I became a man. And I gave up those childish ways. In some ways, it's like Jesus is commissioning Peter to, you used to do this and you used to do that, but now you're going to follow me. And when he says, you used to control where you went and what you wore, he goes, it's going to be a time where you don't get any control over that. And then verse 19, you may wonder, well, why does he say that? Well, John just puts in parentheses, 
He goes, this is why. It's to show what kind of death Peter was going to have to glorify God. And then after this saying, he then said to Peter, follow me. Now the words follow me there are the present imperative in the Greek, which means keep on doing what you've been doing now. So the idea is not, it's not a new call to follow him. It's a present imperative, meaning I called you to follow me. I made you a disciple. You're my rock. You're my spokesperson. Now keep doing the thing that you've been called to do. In many ways, I think if you could just sum it up in the present day language, I think Jesus is looking at Peter on the seashore and he's saying, you're forgiven. You're loved. You're valued. You're esteemed. You are my disciple. Go be what I've called you to be. And yes, it's going to cost you. Now, when he says you'll no longer have control and they'll spread you out, I think what he is saying, and I think most commentators would agree that he is saying, you are going to have your arms spread out. And they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And you'll have no control over it. And roughly within 34 to 35 years of Jesus uttering these words, Jesus knew that Peter would be crucified. Church historians would say that Peter begged to be crucified upside down, and his words were, because I am not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. And it would cost him everything. What's interesting about this is that that's ultimately the ignition of Peter. That conversation seemed to be what gave him the wind to spur him on. We know that because it's a handful of weeks later that Peter, along with other disciples, are gathered on the day of Pentecost, waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them, that there will become witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And when the Spirit of God descended upon Peter, he preached and proclaimed the message of God. His fiery, bold nature, his brashness was contained in one incredible sermon in which he proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. Though he had been persecuted and left for dead, he was the hope of the world. And as a result of that message, they go, well, what should we do with those who believe? And he says, you encourage them to repent and to be baptized today. And we know that 3,000 people, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, came to know Jesus Christ that day as a result of the rock and his preaching. The proclamation of the gospel went forth from this brash, bold, courageous, yet sinful man. And the church was born and lives were changed. And Peter became a pertinent part of the work that began in Jerusalem and spread to the rest of the world. And friends, I would just ask you this question. If God could use Peter... Why can't he use you and me? If you're brash and you're bold and you mess up, isn't there grace when we meet Christ at the cross? Isn't there hope that extends to those who believe? But also, isn't there a declaration for each one of us too? To leave our lives behind, to be crucified with Christ as if you no longer lived? Yes. And I think here's the deal. 
When you look at the progressive nature of Peter and the disciples, the one thing you cannot say is that they were not changed men. But I would just warn you that if you and I, if not careful, take hold of what I call Christianese, or better, the American church, we will believe a lie from the enemy that we can trust Jesus with our lives and never be changed. Friends, if we're never changed by this gospel work, we likely don't know Christ. And the reason why is because if we do know Christ, you will see the progressive nature of his work in us through the power of the Holy Spirit that takes us wherever we are. Maybe we're brash and bold, or maybe we're meek and silent. Either way, he'll take us on a journey that brings us more into the image of Christ. Matter of fact, Paul promised it to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter one, if God begins a work in you, he'll bring it to completion upon the day of Jesus Christ. We should know that God desires a difference in our lives if we know him. Now here's Peter. Y'all got a good idea of who he is? Feel, Feel like you got it? Okay, with that, let me just close with this. Peter was not only a rock in the early church, Peter wrote two letters to a group of people in Asia Minor who were running for their lives at the hands of Nero, a very wicked man, a man who uh, charged Christians out in the middle of Colossians and had them eaten by lions, a man who uh, had others burned at stake, a man who was very wicked and vile, grotesque, a man who you and I would not like today who we would put in upper echelons as Saddam Hussein or Hitler or any of those type of names. A wicked man had Christians running for their lives. As a result, Peter writes to these types of people who are hiding in caves and catacombs anywhere they can to spare their lives. They've already lost their homes, their jobs, their vocations, and aspects of their family. Peter actually writes these words. And knowing who he is, the brash, bold one who's been on a progressive journey, It means all the more when you hear him say, hey, listen, let me leave you with something. In 2 Peter, his second letter to them, his last before he dies, he says these words in 2 Peter chapter one. And I just want you to see them on the screen and we're gonna close with these. I'm not gonna unpack them. It would be a whole nother message, a whole nother day. I just want you to see what Peter writes before his death to a group of people who are going to be persecuted like he is. He knows how he's gonna die. He knows it's coming soon. So he says, hey, let me leave you with a couple things. This is what he leaves his audience with. Here it is. He says in verse three, his divine power, that's Christ, has granted to us all things, all things. Hey, what does all mean? All, everything. That's simple enough for all of us in East Texas, isn't it? He's he's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It spans your life and it spans who you're to become. And through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us the very precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desires. And for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. So he goes, you had what was here, but there's more in Christ. And you'll, you'll grow in that as you, surp- you supplement your faith with virtue. Peter had faith, but he had to grow in these other areas. Virtue. Virtue with what? 
knowledge. An ordinary, uneducated man asked lots of questions. He was a learner by nature. He was a student and apprentice, which made him a very good disciple. He learned. I suppose that Peter in his day probably didn't know how to read, probably could have struggled with learning. Anybody like that in this room? Listen, can I just tell you real quickly that your inability or even the lack of a desire to learn should not be an excuse for any of us to not know our Lord more. He says, grow in knowledge and with self-control. If I can think of any apostle that needed self-control, it would have been Peter. And he says, hey, grow in that too. And with self-control, steadfastness. Steadfastness, that's perseverance. And with perseverance and steadfastness, he goes with godliness and godliness with brother affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you want to be a disciple? You want to change the world? And he goes, grow. Grow. Become more like Christ. How do you become more like Christ? You spend time with Christ and you spend time with his people. And he goes, and for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Because it's not possible for you to proclaim Christ and not be changed by Christ. If so, you're, you're nearsighted, you're blind, you, you, you've missed it. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. He goes, this is the way, follow it. And then he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He says, I think it is right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. He goes, listen, as long as I'm here, as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep stirring. I'm going to keep asking. He goes, I want you to be all there is in Christ. As long as it pertains to life and godliness, he goes, there's more for us. And I'm going to stir you up by way of affection. You'll know I love you. Why? Because he was called to feed the see it? He goes, I got a job to do. And I can't stop feeding the sheep because the sheep don't like my feeding. Sheep don't understand that inclement weather's ahead. Sheep don't understand the dangers that they are posed outside. Sheep don't understand that there are wolves that will imitate a sheep in order to feast on them. Peter goes, I'm going to feed my sheep. And he goes, and I'm going to do it by way of reminder. I'm going to stir you up. And in stirring you up, I'm going to do it until the day of the Lord comes, until his approaching is near. What's interesting is what he says next. Look at verse 14. I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He goes, I'm about to die. It's almost over. And he says, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. In John 21, Jesus said, you will die at the hands of men. You'll have no control over it. <laughs> Peter's been Im imitating Christ all these days and with anticipation, I promise you, he's been waiting for these words to ring true. And he goes, and it's, it's here. And Christ has made it clear to me and I just want to make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. 
He goes, I'll put them to ink so that though you won't hear me, you'll know I've written these things to you. Peter, the rock, the shepherd of sheep, is still feeding the flock today with his words. For 2,000 years plus, we have seen his work and we seek to imitate his brashness, his boldness, and his courage. And along the way, don't we see our fallible nature, our sinful decisions? Yes, but we're just reminded that if he can use an ordinary, uneducated guy like Peter, surely he can use an old gal or guy from East Texas to stir up others' affections and to proclaim the gospel in Van Zant and in Texas. And if the Lord so chooses in Uganda or Mexico or anywhere else, that the Lord would encourage us to go. Why not be a part of that? Sounds kind of exciting to me. But listen, there's a lot of us in this room that we're not courageous enough to brave the cold. <laughs> hey, how much more will it cost you when you have to stare down death for the sake of his namesake? Oh, Lord, may he strengthen our resolve and may he teach us to be his disciples. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your message of hope. We thank you for Peter's life. We thank you for his boldness, his brashness, his courageous nature. We thank you for his mistakes, for it gives us hope that we too can grow into the type of people you need to use. And Lord, we just say, here I am, Lord. Would you send me? Lord, would you use us to bring about change in our communities, in our families, in our counties, locally and globally. Lord, may your name go forth as we stir each other up towards love and good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.